Okay, so what we're going to do now, if you are new to Watermark, we always uh, spend a few minutes in prayer. This is called a pastoral prayer, where one of the leaders will lead us in a time of prayer. And I'm going to say this prayer, or I've written this prayer, I'm going to read what I've written. But this isn't a time just for me to pray and for us to disengage. This is a time for us as a church to pray. And so I want to encourage you to listen to what's being said and then agree with it in your own heart, in your own mind. Say, yes, Lord, I agree. I also want to pray for that. So let's pray as a family for ourselves and uh, for the things we're going to bring before the Lord this morning. So, oh, actually, sorry, before we pray, no, let's, let's pray first. I'll introduce Colin afterwards. Sorry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Sovereign God, merciful and loving Lord, we've gathered this morning, God, not just to be entertained or inspired, not just to fill our minds with information, but God, we've come to worship you and to glorify your name. We've come to meet with you, the living God, and to have an encounter with you. God, we've come to have our hearts both challenged and encouraged and And so, God, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and be here. We so need you, God. God, to come and worship and glorify your name is not only good and right as uh, your creation, but it's good for our souls. And so we gladly turn to you. We worship and adore you this morning. Heavenly Father, we've come to declare your majesty, that you are on the throne, that you rule and you reign in splendor and in beauty. God, we've come to sing of your faithfulness, that there is no one as faithful and consistent as you. That though we are faithless, we often go our own way. God, you are so supremely faithful. Father, we've come to to tell of your mercy and your grace. That though we sin a thousand times, yet your mercy is new every morning. Lord God, if you should hold us accountable for each and every time we've defamed your glory or lived for ourselves, who could stand? But with you, God, there is unceasing mercy, and we praise you for that. Father, we've come to revel in your beauty, to have our hearts rejoice and delight in you, and take joy in just how wonderful you are. Father, there is no other being that delights us like you. There is no human experience more satisfying than knowing you, than being with you, than being known by you. Heavenly Father, even the most intimate and the most satisfying experiences in this world are but a mere shadow, a hint of what we will one day experience when we see you face to face. Great and glorious God, we've come to worship and adore you and find our delight in you. Father, even as we describe your majesty and beauty, we admit that we do not love you like we should. We do not trust you as you deserve to be trusted. And therefore, Father, we do not obey you as you rightly deserve to be obeyed. Father, forgive us, we pray. We confess that our hearts are prone to wonder, to turn in on ourselves. By nature, God, we are self-seeking and self-serving. And for this, God, we ask you to forgive us, but also to change us. God, we need you to renew us and revive our hearts. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need you. Father, as we confess our need for you, won't you hear our prayers and revive our hearts, fan into flame our love for you again. Father, this church and our hearts are in your hands. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot sanctify ourselves. We cannot work our way towards Christ-likeness. But you can change us and make us more like Jesus. God, come and do it, we pray. 
Father, tear down the idols of our hearts. Expose our unbelief. Destroy our pride and our self-sufficiency and bring us to your throne of grace, we pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we also want to pray for our brothers and sisters in mainland China. Our hearts break when we hear of the opposition that many of your followers face. The pressure they face to worship and honor created beings, men, as much as they are encouraged to worship you. Father, we confess that many of our brothers and sisters in China love you more than we do. Father, where we would have given in and fallen away, denied your name or sought our own comfort, they've held on to your name and they've honored you. Father, even now we feel hardly worthy to even pray for them. We need their prayers and their faith. But God, we stand with them this morning and we bring our brothers and sisters before you and we ask you that you give them courage, God. Give them faith. Pour your love into their hearts, God. Protect them and keep them safe. Keep their hearts soft towards you and towards their oppressors and grow their faith, God. Father, we pray for ourselves. Grow our faith as well. That when our day of persecution comes, we will not found to have shrunk back, but we will stand resolutely for the honor and the praise of your name. Father, we pray these things in your praiseworthy and your trustworthy name. Amen. Amen. So the, Justin's going to come and read the scripture to us. Uh, there you go. But while Justin comes up, let me introduce Colin. Colin Farrell, you can make your way up. Colin is going to be bringing God's word to us this morning. And it's the first time that Colin has preached at Watermark, but not the first time he has opened up God's word. And so, Colin, we're looking forward to you bringing God's word to us this morning. Uh, enjoy yourself and have fun. But let's listen to the reading of God's word. The scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 5. Please follow along in your bulletins or on the screen. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on, or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as it to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your, blood, with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. 
Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of God. Stand. Just in case you're in any doubt, uh, the main point of the passage is simply that Jesus is worthy. The two practical questions, however, are, so why exactly is Jesus worthy? And what difference does that make to us? Before we get to any of that, let's just commit our time in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and training in righteousness so that we, your servants, may be equipped for every good work. Father, help me to explain this passage well. Help us to hear it and put it into practice. For your name's sake, amen. Kevin's introduced me, but for those of you who don't know me, I'm Colin, I'm a member here. And for those of you who are new today, uh, we're doing a series in Revelation. So if you've not already got one of these, this will be useful for the rest of the series. Because we're doing a series, there's a context to this chapter. So before we get into today's chapter five and why Jesus is worthy, Let's just do a quick recap of the first four chapters and of where we're starting in chapter five. We're looking at the book of Revelation and from the first four verses of chapter one, we know that this book is a letter. It's a letter from John to seven churches, the seven churches he was involved in founding. It's a letter that explicitly calls itself the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. It's a revelation which, from the beginning of chapter one, is explicitly made known to Jesus by John, and so hence the letter to the churches. It's a letter that also explicitly calls itself a prophecy. And unusually and encouragingly, it tells us about the prophecy that blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. The second and the third chapters of the book, of the letter, they've been direct messages from Jesus to each of the seven Asian churches. All of those churches are located in what is modern-day Turkey, and 
10 of us went with uh, Chris and Fiona earlier in the year to have a look at those cities. Size of those churches, fairly small. Probably smaller than this group here. Maybe much smaller. While there's probably a general theme in those mini-messages to the seven churches, choose between compromise and faithfulness. Choose between compromise and faithfulness. There's very different specific messages to the individual churches because they've got different situations. They're dealing with apathy. They're dealing with affluence. They're dealing with false teaching. They're dealing with immorality. But there's a fairly common structure, and that structure has a little echo in today's chapter. And that structure is, this is me, Jesus. I know you. This is my challenge to you. This is my encouragement. And there's also a phrase that should perhaps have us just pricking up our ears in the message to the churches, because it's the same phrase to each of the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's pretty much my prayer for this chapter. The fourth chapter of the book, we have a change of scene for chapter one. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And there's an explicit statement of intent. For chapter one, Jesus to John. Come up here, and I'll show you what must soon take place. For two, behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Kevin's one-sentence summary of chapter four to me was, God is on the throne above all earthly powers, and therefore Christians have hope, and we don't need to live in fear. And we ended chapter four with the place rocking in the party sense, hearing two great songs of praise in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. And the end of chapter four, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you've created all things, and by your will they exist and are created. So chapter four ends with God on his throne and a great song of praise. Which brings us to chapter five in our passage today. We're still with John. We're looking at the throne. John hasn't got what was promised in 4.1. Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. But the stage is set, and I say the stage is set deliberately because there's even more than chapter four. Quite a sense of wow, theater, drama, panning of camera angles, and dramatic music. Can you see it? Have a look at uh, the chapter. Verse one, verse two, verse six, verse 11. I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and then I looked. Verse 4, verse 7, I began to weep greatly, and he took the book. Verse 2, 11, 12, and 13, proclaiming with a loud voice, saying with a loud voice, and I heard, and I heard. And this dramatic stage, 
What's it set for? Well, it's set for a question, an answer, and a response. Verse two and verse three, we have a question, and it's a surprising one. Verse three to verse ten, we have an answer, and that's also a surprising one. In verse eleven to fourteen, we have a response which ripples out. So let's start with verse one and that first I saw. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. We actually don't need to get too much into what this book or scroll, depending on your translation, is or will say, since we'll find that out in the next few chapters. But for our purposes, here's John, and he's still waiting to find out what must take place after this. And here's God on the throne, above all earthly powers, holding a book, written all over, sealed. The reasonably obvious implication is that this is God's message, this is God's plan, and that's what John's here to hear. And that would almost certainly be the assumption of those listeners in the seven churches because there are some pretty strong Old Testament links, Chris Thornton's hyperlinks here, references from Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. And so the book's there. Next obvious thing is to open the book. And that's where we get to verse 2 and a somewhat surprising question. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? and to break its seals. Strong angel with a loud voice, because verse 3 tells us this question is heard everywhere in heaven on earth. But that's really not the most obvious question. Verse 1, there's the book, it's sealed. And then you get this question. But how about the one who sits on the throne just opening the book? How about the angel going... Who's going to open the book? But that's not the question. It's kind of a strange question, and verse 3 kind of underlines that. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. This seems to be a question without an answer. So, let's ask ourselves, why this question? What does asking this question that seemingly no one can answer teachers. Well, it could be to underline that none of us in our own right is worthy to front up to God at all. It's true, it's biblical, it's always worth remembering, it's probably not the main point. It also could be to underline that none of us is worthy to know anything about God's plan other than what he chooses to share with us. It's comforting to know that there's a plan. There's a plan for our individual lives. So frustrating not to ever know what that is, necessarily. That's also true. It's also biblical. When we add that the other side of frustrating is trust, trust in God. There's a total aside on that thought. A useful afternoon or evening would be to look at the last five chapters of Job and 
Try and work out why Job says in the last chapter, these are things too wonderful for me to know, which I didn't know, and I repent in dust and ashes. That's a total aside. Again, this probably, while it's worth registering, it's not the main point. Rather, the very point of the question seems to be simply, there is only one answer. No one in heaven or earth or under the earth is able or worthy other than the one we're about to find out about. It's a kind of siren going, this next bit's important. Listen to it. Verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because nobody was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John is devastated, which again perhaps underlines the importance of getting an answer to the question. But he's comforted and corrected, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And if you've ever wondered where the lion in uh, C.S. Lewis' Narnia stories comes from, here's probably a fairly good bet. There's actually no exact Bible references being picked up here, tribe of Judah, root of David. But there's some pretty strong echoes, more of Chris's hyperlinks from Genesis and from Isaiah. And those early church readers will probably have picked those up more easily than us. And the gist is reasonably clear. There's a clear sense of strong ruler, king, Messiah, promised one. And that kind of ties quite well to this has overcome. Comment in verse 5. Which brings us to a surprising answer to the angel's question. Verses 6 and 7. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 7 first, because it's actually quite easy to skip over it. And it's like that short phrase in Genesis 1.16, which to save you looking it up, is, and he made the stars also. It's one of those phrases that kind of just go over and then go what just happened something we really don't quite register when it's actually something pretty stunning here's the seal book we've just heard a resounding silence to the question who's worthy to open this book and now he and we're about to find out who he is fronts up and takes the book out of the hand of the one who sits on the throne, who, recall from last week, is the one above all earthly powers. So who is this one who unchallengedly, if that's a word, is worthy to do this? Verse 6. It's a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. 
Seven horns and seven eyes, there's instant understanding for the original Asian church readers, less so for us. So seven is the number of perfection, like eight is the number for fortune or luck for us. Horn is the, is the biblical symbol of strength. Eyes are the biblical symbol of wisdom. So the picture is one of perfect power, perfect wisdom. And seven spirits also suggest omnipresence, i.e. God is everywhere. But this is a lamb, and a lamb that's been slain. And that doesn't immediately tie with verse 5, with what was being described there. The strong lion from the tribe of Judah, the promised root of David, the one who is overcome. But that slain lamb is a description that's underlined. Verse 9, you were slain. Verse 12, the lamb that was slain. And peeking outside chapter 5, it's underlined in chapter 7. And it was there in chapter 1 as well. The Lion of Judah and the Root of David is also, unexpectedly for many, the slain lamb. So why exactly is a slain lamb uniquely worthy to take the book and to open it? Verses 8 to 10. Actually, our answer is verses 9 to 10, but let's pause for 30 seconds on verse 8, again, so we don't pass over it. Verse 8. The immediate reaction to the lamb taking the book in verse 7. The elders fall down. As one commentator puts it, they give him their most profound adoration and worship. And that's probably a fairly good cue for us as well. And in passing, if you ever wonder about the power of prayer the value of prayer. Note where our prayers are, since saints are simply Jesus' followers. Our prayers are incense in golden bowls before the throne of God. So be encouraged to pray. Also in passing, and somewhat less seriously, if you ever wondered why harps get associated with heaven, this verse is one reason why. Back to our question. Why exactly is the slain lamb uniquely worthy to take the book? Bearing in the mind that the answer to that question seems kind of important. If the whole point of the angel's question is to provoke the answer, no one but this slain lamb is worthy. Our answer's here in verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book, and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they'll reign upon the earth. Why is the lamb worthy? Three reasons. First, he's worthy because he was slain. He is the true sacrificial lamb that satisfies the justice of God. John's original readers will have got the point much quicker than we would have done. Because again, because of Chris's hyperlinks and their reference. So let me give us some. Isaiah 53, verse six and seven. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not a mouth, his mouth 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Isaiah 53. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he'll bear their iniquities, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. John 1, 29, 36. John the Baptist speaking. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Or well, lastly, 1 Peter 18, 1, 18 to 19. You were ransomed, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus, the slain lamb, is literally faithful unto death. Luke 22, 42. Jesus praying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And so we celebrate the cross. It's where God's justice and judgment on sin also meet with God's grace because of the slain lamb. And if there's anyone in church who doesn't understand that, then please talk afterwards to the person who brought you or talk with me. So he's worthy because he's slain. Second, he's worthy because he was slain and so, by his blood, he ransomed or purchased, depending upon your translation, for God, men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Look around us for a taster of what that looks like. And so we give thanks and we celebrate our unity in a new body. And we can't exclude anybody from that. Third, he's worthy because he's made this ransomed, purchased group a kingdom and a priesthood to God, and they'll reign. And so we have a glorious new role and a new future. And that's probably another of those verses or comments that we don't really get. We pass over, but it's worth just thinking about something rather stunning, dwell on it, and it's praiseworthy. In a very real sense, the Lamb is God's plan. The looked-for Lion of Judah and the Root of David is also the Lamb that was slain, the rescuer and creator of a new people for God to serve God, bought through the cost of his blood and literal sacrifice for us. And that's why he's uniquely worthy. Pause button. Two side thoughts. Why do organizations like Faith Comes by Hearing place such emphasis on translating the Bible for every people, every language group? It's because of verses like this. The purchase price is paid for every tribe and tongue. So let's get that news to them and add their unique voice to this song. Also note some of the tenses here. You were slain, past tense. Jesus is now visibly and gloriously alive. And so he's a marker and a guarantee for us in death. 
you ransomed, you have made, they shall reign. There's a bit of a commentary debate on that shall reign as to whether it's current or future. But the gist of all three of these is it's a done deal. It's echoing the same thought of it's overcome, he's overcome. This is all certain. Back to our new song. We've had the question, who's worthy? We've had the answer, the lamb is. And now we've got this growing response in verses 11 to 14. First, 11 and 12. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. And a number of them, the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The praise and worship which started with the four living creatures and the elders in verse 9 ripples out to the host of angels in verse 11 and it continues to ripple out in verse 13 to everything in heaven and earth. But verse 11 and 12 John is looking and hearing a huge and loud swell of praise in heaven for the slain lamb. And note this is actually saying something more than before about the slain lamb being worthy. First, it's actually echoing the words at the end of chapter 4, which were to God. God is worthy of glory, honor, and power. Here, it's the lamb that's worthy of these things. So anyone who suggests that God, Jesus is not also God, so Jehovah's Witnesses, for one, amongst many, they're going to have a small problem with this verse. Second, it's saying loudly that the lamb that was slain is worthy to receive riches and might and wisdom and blessing. And that could raise at least two very practical questions. First, are we offering these things to him? Are we offering these things ourselves to him? Second, if we're focused on any of these things for ourselves, riches, honor, glory, blessing, we're focused for any of these things for ourselves in our own lives, might it just be worth remembering that these things are ultimately his, not ours. Verse 13 and 14. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Same point as before. The Lamb and the God are equally worthy of honor and glory, but now also dominion and rule forever. And note, this is a song that ultimately all are going to be singing all of us are going to be singing. And again, that may raise the question for some here, is this already your song or not? And again, if you're in any doubt about that, talk afterwards with the person who brought you or with me.
So, let's recap. We said that in chapter 5, we've got the stage set in verse 1 for a surprising question. Verses 2 and 3. Who's worthy to open the book? Verse 3 to 10, we've got a surprising answer. No one is worthy other than the lamb standing as though it's been slain. And we have a response rippling out in verse 13 and 14 from all that the lamb that was slain is indeed worthy forever. I started by saying the main point of the chapter is Jesus is worthy. But the two questions to get our heads and our hearts around, two practical questions are why exactly is Jesus worthy and what difference does that make? So why exactly is Jesus worthy again? Well, he's worthy, he's uniquely worthy because by his death and his blood, he's ransomed a new people, a people of every nation, language and tongue, tribe and people group to be a new kingdom, priest to our God and to have a new and glorious future. Jesus the the Lamb is also worthy in the eyes of heaven and ultimately in the eyes of all, everywhere, to have honor and power and wealth and might and wisdom and blessing forever. What difference does that make? What difference did that make to the original listeners, readers of the seven churches? I can think of at least four reasons. First, God is in control. He has his detailed plan, verse 1. Second, that detailed plan includes them, and gloriously so, verse 9 and verse 10. They don't need to weep. The lamb who was slain is worthy to open and reveal God's plan to them. Can't do it for themselves. The lamb who died for them has been, is, and will be an integral part of God's plan, a plan paid for at the cost of his own life and his own blood. And it's the lamb who will bring his people to God as a heaven-worthy part of that plan. As one of the commentators puts it, we need not fear. If we are his purchased property, he'll provide for us. If we are priests and kings in his ideal, We may trust him so as to arrange our life plan to secure the best exercise of those functions. Or put another way, when we recognize who God is, what he's done, and what he's promised, we should have no problem trusting him to carry through in the future. His actions in the past should give us confidence in his saving power in the future. Third, In the light of this, that God is in control and that his plan includes them gloriously, they face the same simple question as God's chosen ransom people have always faced in Scripture and that we saw a little echo of in those mini messages to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. This is God. This is what he's done. This is what he promises. So... How will they respond? 
How will they organize their lives? Is he worthy of ongoing praise and trust? Will they choose to trust him? Will they choose to be, as Revelation 1-3 put it, blessed are those who hear and keep what's written in this, for the time is near. Fourth, and varying that last thought, if the Lamb is worthy from all in heaven and earth of their honor and glory and wealth and power, they're probably not going to be wrong if that's whom they place their honor, their glory, their wealth and their power in. What difference does Jesus being worthy make to us? Why do we, the latest readers of Revelation, need to know this? Perhaps for much the same reason or blessing to use Revelation's language. If it helps, take the non-Revelation Old Testament picture of God's ransom people fresh out of the exodus and the escape from Egypt, they're standing on the borders of the promised land, which, if you remember, they did not once, but twice, 40 years apart. The first time, they pretty much went, this is God. This is what he's done. This is what he promises. And those guys in the promised land, they look awfully big, and they look awfully scary, and this looks too scary. So the first time, they chose not to trust God. And so, Batu, they all died in the wilderness. Forty years later, God's people standing in the same place. And they pretty much went through the same thought process. This is God. This is what he's done. This is what he promises. This is scary. But the Lord our God is with us wherever we go. And so they went forward in faith of what and who they knew. Same facts, different reaction. Now take that picture and go back to the picture of this chapter, Revelation 5. This is Jesus on the other side of death. Heaven and earth are rocking. They're resounding with this repeated refrain Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb because. Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory forever. It's the same simple point. This is God. This is what he's done. This is what he promises. What are we going to do? How should we, you and I, respond to this? How should we, you and I, choose to live? Where we see our lives headed, in our priorities of what matters, in our simple day-to-day living, in what we individually ascribe worth and honor and power, attention, time, money. What is my, our, your, emotional and practical response to this truth and this song? What's our response to be? I started our look at chapter 5 by saying the main point of chapter 5 is Jesus is worthy. And I said our two practical questions 
to get our heads and our hearts around why exactly is Jesus worthy? Why does that matter? What difference does that make to us? And if the summary of chapter 4 is God is on the throne above all earthly powers and so Christians have hope and don't need to live in fear, then perhaps the summary of this chapter, chapter 5, which answers those two questions might be this. Jesus is acknowledged as uniquely worthy because he's the slain lamb who's ransomed people for God to a new future. And therefore Christians can safely respond by praising him and putting themselves and everything in his hands forever. I'll ask the musicians to come up in a moment, but I'm going to close by reading three brief verses which seem potentially relevant, and then the last three verses of our chapter five. And let's just sit simply, quietly for a minute to consider what our individual response is to this chapter. Three verses. Psalm 56. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Revelation 1. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verses 12 to 15. Then I looked, and I heard thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped.